Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Well, it's that time again. It's the first Bench Talk episode of the month, so we'll be hearing today from Professor J. Scott Miller about what we should expect to see in the night sky this month, October of 2019. But before that, we want to finish up our interview with Dr. Robert Schick, who's an archaeologist and historian who is based at the University of Mainz in Germany. To hear the first part of this interview, just go to our podcast on our webpage at forwardradio.org slash bench dash talk. That's forwardradio.org slash bench dash talk. Just select the September 30th, 2019 episode. Now, Dr. Schick has been studying Near Eastern history since the 1980s and has more than 80 research publications to his name. So he's an interesting guy. So here's my suggestion. Put on a sweater and go out into your backyard or a local park and start adjusting your eyes to the night sky. And that'll happen as you listen to this interview. It's about 16 minutes long. And then we'll play J. Scott Miller's story about the night sky. And you will be able to see all of that in its glory through your then dilated pupils. So this interview starts with Dr. Robert Schick telling us about his various digs in Jordan and Jerusalem. Let's get going. Well, but this particular site is a prime site for the early Islamic period remains. And then there's the Byzantine wall. So we're specifically excavating, well, a series of, you know, five by five meter trenches. But when you're dealing with a city, five by five Mm, meters doesn't really get you all that far. (laughs) Well, and so you've got this huge site, which is now in the middle of agricultural fields. And so there's hundreds of meters in every direction of the little spot where we're putting in our handful of five-by-five-meter trenches. (laughs) And there's three meters of deposit. And and, and and, and and there's a complex series of phases from Byzantine period up until uh, medieval Islamic times here. It's it's a very rich site. So a person could spend their whole career at that one site. Well, we're excavating, focusing our attention on one big Byzantine period church. Well, I spent... The, the, we had short one-month seasons in 2013, 2014, and 2016, and I managed to get one five-by-five-meter trench wow. dug down <laughs> the three meters to the sterile soil. Okay, so that's three years to do one five-by-five-meter trench at that rate. It would be 100 years yeah. to do just this one Is church building. <laughs> Is that frustrating? At the end of the day, you think, oh, I got a few well, we're um, choosing, cubic feet of soil yeah, out. Well, or, you do about one cubic meter a day or yeah. so. Well, well, that's a lot. Well, no. not, well, okay, but you've got a five by five meter, that's 25 square meters. Yeah. With three meters depth, that's 75 meter, yeah. cubic meters. So it's 75 days worth of work yeah. to do that, that one, one trench. Well, we're, we're choosing to do this 
meticulously. Yes, you're being careful. We're, we're sifting a hundred percent. Lots of projects will choose not to bother, but we find we get a lot of things we would miss if we didn't sift. Like ju- jewelry. Well, well coins is a whole variety yeah. of small finds. Plus, we're getting you no know, total recovery of animal bones, so we feel it's worth it yeah. to do a hundred percent sift. And then, you know, we've got the pottery that we come up with copious amounts of. And so anyway, so... Yeah, that's so interesting. So one trench in three years. <laughs> and so 100 years it'll take to do that one building at that rate. So it'll be long beyond <laughs> my lifetime. Well, and we've now stopped that particular phase of this project. Yeah, what do you think is the most rewarding part of your job? What gets well, you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, well, I've... I'm doing this because it's my passion. Yeah, I am not getting a spe- not being especially well paid in the course of my <laughs> career for this, and so I'm I'm choosing to do this because I'm interested in the yeah. intellectual, mm-hmm. uh, the the insight that we gain yeah, from that's... from from these research uh, excavations. Now, a young person, say a 18 year old, who mm. thinks they might want to pursue archaeology, what do you mm-hmm. think? What would you recommend they do? Well, join a project and mm. see if it, it fits. Because they're yeah. well in the Eastern Mediterranean, the summers are hot and uncomfortable circumstances, and a lot of people give up after the one season realizes yeah. that it's not so for them or whatever. There are plenty of excavations that you, a person can join for a summer uh, experience like a vo- they volunteer? as volunteers. Yeah. Or, well, there are a lot of universities in the United States that have a professor mm-hmm. on the faculty who directs a project. And so then the students take part and get academic credit for their participation in the, in the excavation season. But there are other excavations, well, especially in Israel, has an active volunteer programs where people can come and join as volunteers for the four weeks or six weeks Mm -hmm. or eight week uh, excavation seasons that well you have to pay your own way or whatever yeah but still the earlier you get the experience the quicker you realize whether this genuinely is what you're interested in and the more excavation experience you have the better you become with your understanding of proper technique and what Hmm. you're finding your ability to understand what you are uncovering yeah so in my case well i first took part in an excavation in israel when i was 17 and that pretty much clinched my interest in archaeology as a career but then I didn't have another season until I had started graduate school. Mm-hmm. And that's when I joined a project in Jordan. And But I didn't, as an academic career in grad school, I did not take any courses in anthropology huh. or archaeological methodology. So it's I've been self-taught by a lot of excavation experience, especially in my, my earlier years. And when I finished grad school, then I went to Jordan and took part in, in a number of excavation seasons in the course of the following years that enabled me to gain a lot more experience than coming every other summer for the one project in, in Jordan. So I've accumulated quite a lot of excavation yeah. experience, Only although I do not have any formal academic training that shows up on transcripts. Yeah, so yeah, it looks like from your CV you're supervising some projects. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so after a couple of seasons you get promoted if you're yeah. competent to be an area supervisor supervising other people who are excavating the individual squares and 
And then, well, in my case, I did not get a tenure career track position at an American university, so I, I was never really in a position in my early years to yeah. take the plunge and try to get a project of my own started. And then, well, the way my career developed, well, I'm not the best model to try to follow with my, <laughs> with my rather vagabond life shifting. Well, a lot of years in Jordan and being in Jerusalem teaching with the Palestinians, yeah. and then I went off to India as a side move for my six years where I was teaching Islamic studies. But I realized early on in my time in India that my heart was back in Jordan. So when my position oh, came to a natural yeah. end after six years, I then returned to my previous involvement, specifically in Jordan, but I also maintained my academic interests in Jerusalem, especially the Islamic periods in yeah. Jerusalem. I imagine that if you had had a traditional academic position, you wouldn't have been to so many sites. That's right. I would have had substantially less You'd focus on archaeological experience. Because typically, American university-sponsored projects, the team will go every other year hmm. ah. for six weeks or whatever. Because when you have a large project with students taking part of it, you generate so much information that the professor with his teaching responsibilities and everybody else takes time to get caught up with Mm -hmm. the initial processing, record keeping, and then writing the preliminary reports and having the specialists analyze your material that you can't get really all of that done in time for a season the following summer. So it's alternate years, yes, yes, right. I see that you've done quite a bit of translation. You've translated yes. from Arabic to English. Yes, in German to German English. German to yes. English. Yes. And was it Italian? I've done a few articles in Ital- from Italian into English. Where do you English. learn all these languages? Well, <laughs> well, I'm fluent in Arabic. I had studied Arabic as an undergraduate, and I spent a year okay. at the American University in Cairo on an intensive mm-hmm. year-long Arabic study program. So I'm, and I've been living in Jordan yeah. for you know, years, and so I'm fluent in Arabic, which is valuable because I focused my attentions on the Islamic periods where Arabic is the primary source yeah. for much of the historical information that's available. Well, so, but then also as a practicing archaeologist, I'm one of comparatively few hmm. archaeologists working in Jordan that has learned Arabic fluently. Is that right? Yeah. A yeah, lot, a of, lot of people will learn some pidgin Arabic so yeah. they can mm-hmm. sort of communicate with their locally hired workmen. But I'm one of a very few who know Arabic fluently. yeah. And so part of my career, I've done quite a few translations of literature, archaeological reports sort of thing yeah. from yeah. from Arabic into it. English and then German into English as well. Well, I've, I've been in Germany now for the last five years. I had also, well, started German in high school. Oh, okay. Well, I'm of German ethnic background with my, well, yeah, ultimate ancestors. <laughs> so anyway, so there's, a, there's a heritage interest for me having learned German as opposed to French or whatever. Yeah. Well, so then I have been doing on the side as one of my money-earning things. Yeah. It's, it's translation of some literature related to Palestinian folk customs. There were a the number of Germans producing ethnographs studies of Palestinian customs in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. That's been the focus of what I'm translating from German into these obscure articles that nobody knows (laughs) about because there's actually few people. 
Americans certainly read German fluently enough to yeah, to I be imagine. aware of the, this <laughs> an, of this ethnographic literature from just before the First World War. That's neat. Well, one question yeah. I had was: Do you discover things that end up in museums? Yeah, there's like there's a, a number a number well marble statues oh, that yeah, sort really? of thing comes up occasionally. Well, yeah, so there's a number of things I've found that are on display in that must museums. Be gratifying to go to the yeah. museum and see it. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I've been pointing out why did that. Yeah. <laughs> I would think that would be kind of neat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I did have a question because I used to work for U.S. AID Agency oh, yes, for International yes, right, Development, and right. so they funded some of your digs back yes. in the eighties or 90s. well, well, yes, there, there has been in Jordan an active involvement by the U.S. Agency for International Development for, in archaeological or heritage yeah. projects for tourism development. Oh, so yeah, so they're yeah, the, 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 the angle sure. is that this is supporting tourism. Mm-hmm. And so there's a couple of long-term projects I was involved in that were funded in large part by the United States Agency for International yeah. Development. Yeah, and you probably were training locals. You'd have local, local involvement, yes. Yeah, so, well, and so then the American Center of Oriental Research, the Archaeological Center in Jordan, has currently a major project funded by USAID that's focused on training locals in various yeah. aspects of cultural resource management and heritage preservation. Oh, so do you have any advice to the general public about archaeology or about the Near East? Well, so few people actually ever travel abroad that I have I obviously am very much interested in foreign cultures and I've yeah. spent at this point over half of my life living outside of the United States, so obviously I am very interested in in foreign cultures, and I could only encourage people to travel abroad. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and these days there's so many problems in the Near East, I guess a lot Mm -hmm. of people. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, tourism has probably been hit in Jordan. Well, yes, Jordan has tourism as one of its major economic uh, branches, and whenever there's some, the situation blows up somewhere, that does have an immediate impact on Jordan. So Jordan has a very much a vested interest in wanting the situation to be stable, but the larger political scene is beyond Jordan's control, and like when Syria blows up or whatever, then then Jordan suffers in a very yeah. immediate way when tourists cancel their vacation trips or whatever. There are times in recent years where the number of people who come to Petra, this world-famous major site, drops to almost nothing when it's such a yeah. spectacular site oh, that, it's that, sad. Yes. that when when things are normal you'll have hordes of people yeah. wanting to come i would love so, to go to petra so, oh yes yes <laughs> can you in an alternative life can you imagine what you would have pursued if you didn't go into archaeology well i suppose i would have been an academic in some yeah. field anyway but no obvious field <laughs> alternative yeah yeah <laughs> Well, my mother's family were all academics in biochemistry and in medicine. So I'm here in Louisville visiting my mother's relatives. Yeah. And an uncle and aunt were on the medical school here at the University of, mm-hmm. of Louisville. 
Yeah, well, my mother, well, was also was a biochemist. Interesting. Because her father and one of her sisters also were biochemists. My, my grandfather was at Penn State University, one of the, the yeah. pioneering yes. American you know, academics in biochemistry, anyway. So, you have siblings? So I have an older brother and an older sister. Did they go into yeah. academia? They didn't. Well, my brother <laughs> went into computers. Yeah. And he had a year or so of grad school, but realized what's the point of getting a degree <laughs> when finishing his BA, he was earning more in his first year yes. than my father as a professor of New Testament theology <laughs> at this seminary in, in Dubuque, Iowa, Maybe my hometown. Maybe not the top paying so, yeah. position at yeah, the yeah, school. So, so, so that he, he spent, yeah, so he spent his, his career with, well, information services for yeah. a major publishing company and then later in his career for a you know, pension processing firm doing their information, you know, computer stuff. Then my sister, yeah, she didn't yeah, do much with academics. No. So she had her career at, as a the person in charge of the public relations department at the University of Iowa Hospital. Oh, okay. But, so she but, did then she retired some years ago as well. I anyway. watched quite a few kids grow up in mm -hmm. families of academics, and mm -hmm. sometimes they want mm -hmm. to go in academia, and sometimes mm -hmm. they want to go the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, then with my father's side of the family, well, he grew up on a sod house in the middle of the prairie of South Dakota, <laughs> and he was the first of the six children to even go to high school. And so that he went on to get his doctorate was he's the one with the non with the, with the academic career because there was one the younger daughter went to college for one year but others the older brother didn't get beyond the eighth grade yeah so they were in, in the middle of the prairie in South Dakota with limited opportunities <laughs> but my father ended up then having his successful career in academics whereas the others all stayed on the farm and, yeah uh, I wonder yeah, how that yeah. happened with him yeah. a yeah. calling mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah, I'm impressed with, with your calling. Thank you mm -hmm. so much, Dr. Mm -hmm. Schick, for coming mm -hmm. in. Yeah, yeah. I know you're busy today, but... <laughs> yeah, we're glad to have had the chance to have this talk. So, Thank you. So thanks. That was archaeologist Dr. Robert Schick of the University of Mainz in Germany. You are listening to Bench Talk, the Weekend Science, here on WFMP 106.5 FM here in Louisville, Kentucky. On to the next story about science. Now that your eyes have adjusted to the night sky, presuming you're out there, let's listen to Professor Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College here in Kentucky telling us about what to look for in the October sky. Scott here. For about a year now, I've been attempting to show off the night sky at a time just a little after darkness has fallen. I get out at that time in the evening because there isn't much on television to distract me, and it's relaxing to reconnect with the night sky. It also allows for the participation of the simplest of science, looking with one's eyes to take in the whole of the subject at hand and to look for patterns. This is how science got its start, going back to the time of humans prior to recorded history. 
It is the simplest science technique and can sometimes be just as fulfilling as working in a lab hoping for a breakthrough. That said, October has arrived with hopefully cooler temperatures, but with definitely darker skies at an earlier time than in summer months. As I step out on my front porch and allow my eyes to adjust to the dark, low in the northern horizon in front of me are the stars of the Big Dipper. Over the next few months, spotting the Dipper is a bit of a challenge. Stars that make it up are easily hidden from view by objects in its direction, such as nearby trees or houses. It takes a little effort to move about some in order to pick up the seven stars that make up the Dipper. Of course, once found, those stars can be put to work finding other objects in the sky. Before getting too close to the northern horizon, the two pointer stars that mark the front side of the Dipper's Bowl can be used to find the North Star, Polaris. Start with the bottom of those two stars and draw a line through and beyond the upper star, the one that marks the lip of the Dipper's Bowl. That line will continue on to a single star, pretty much in isolation. That star should be Polaris. Polaris has the distinction of not appearing to move throughout the night. All the other stars in the sky seem to move about it over the course of that night. I did mention the possibility of simple science-related observations. In addition, over the course of the night and year, it does not move closer or farther from the horizon, unlike the other stars. So Polaris offers two things to the casual observer, the direction north, and the latitude of one's location if one measures the angle from the horizon up to Polaris. Polaris is also part of the group of stars, asterism in science speak, called the Little Dipper. It does in fact mark the handle of the Little Dipper. In the early evening skies of October, one sees two more stars that finish the handle up and to the left of Polaris. If the skies are dark enough, not washed out by city lights, Beyond those three are four stars in the shape of a box that together with the handle finish the Little Dipper. The astronomical community has divided the sky into 88 regions referred to as constellations. Many of the names of these constellations come down from antiquity, and except in a few cases, few of these constellations look like their namesakes. The Big and Little Dippers are asterisms. They are not one of the 88 chosen ones, but instead simply catch the eyes as a simple pattern of stars. They both happen to be part of official constellations known as the Big and Little Bears or Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. Asterisms serve the purpose of catching our eyes with simple patterns many can recognize. This can then lead to the discovery of those less obvious constellations. If I move farther out into the yard and away from the house, I can swing my gaze to my left, the direction west, if I first start off looking for the dippers. The star Arcturus first catches the eye because it is much brighter than nearby stars. I know it is Arcturus thanks to the curve of the handle of the Big Dipper. Following the curve of those stars leads to Arcturus. Continuing my gaze even more around to the left brings me to the southwestern sky and a couple of planets. Jupiter is the brightest of the two. Saturn, a bit dimmer, is almost due south. Just down and to the right of Jupiter, a second bright star may be seen. That would be Antares, the heart of Scorpius the Scorpion. During the first full week of October, the moon is also found high up in the southern sky, well east of Saturn. In fact, its ever-brightening appearance may cause enough sky pollution on its own to obscure many of the stars, perhaps even making Saturn a little obscure. 
but throughout the week the moon in its orbit is seen more around to the eastern sky at the same time each night making its brightness less of an issue at least in the early evening when the moon rises full this october it will be referred to as the hunter's moon in september the closest full moon to the first day of autumn in the northern hemisphere is called the harvest moon at this time of the year when the moon is full or nearly so the time interval between rising times from day to day is shorter on average than during the summer or winter so on those few days either side of the full moon the moon would be in the sky more quickly after the sun sets to aid farmers working to get their harvest in as to the hunter's moon its name comes from its evening use as well with the fields cleared at harvest time now would be the time to be able to move by the light of the full moon through the newly reaped fields looking for game in ancient times this was necessary for the acquiring of game to be used for meat in the winter one nice thing about the full moon popping up around mid-month is that it may not adversely affect one of the popular meteor showers that peaks in october the orionid meteor shower this shower is well known not because of lots of meteors seen near its peak but because the meteors seen are from the famous comet comet halley during each visit close to the sun bits and pieces of the comet's nucleus are left behind along its orbital path and when the earth moves through that debris we see shooting stars the peak of the orionids is on october 22nd but one might see some orionids from the beginning of october until around the 7th of november be aware though that there are some other lesser known showers also active this month to be a true orionid one must trace the path of the meteor back in the direction of the constellation orion the hunter that familiar pattern rises about midnight at this time of the year so meteors tracked back toward the east could be a sign one has seen an orionid i opened today's tour of the night sky by mentioning sky watching being one of the most ancient sciences I have also alluded to how some simple science can be done observing the night skies of October. Doing science that is both fun and relatively simple, it can't get much better than that. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives that's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes 
If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.